Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Darner Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. We're continuing with our anti-trash marathon, in which we discuss films that might indeed show up in a film studies course this current month, and we are only looking at westerns. So it is a western genre marathon. Moving into next week, uh, next month rather, when we do proper good trash westerns. But this week's anti-trash western is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Paul Newman, Robert Redford. It is a classic from 1969, and uh, we'll be talking all about that. But before we get any further, let's identify these here disembodied voices speaking to your brain. To my left, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and man, no, no lines for me this week. Not a lot of lines in this movie. No, it's a dialogue light movie. I was trying to remember the one that Paul Newman's got a great one uh, revealing that he's never done a shoot on somebody before. I couldn't remember the exact line. I've never, I say I've never shot a man or I've never killed a man or something like that. Yeah, it was, it was actually Butch's response, which was, this is a bad time to tell yeah. me that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> really, really bad time. Well, true, true facts. Thank you very much. It's a very bad time for you to come up with the line. Yes, Moving it was. <laughs> Who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon, and boy... <laughs> I got vision and the whole world wears bifocals. That's fun. That's that a, good a good line. line. Yeah. And I'm just going to say Australia because Princess Bride and the discussion of Australia. Yeah. So there you go. Um, done and done. William Goldman comes up in the screenwriting of this particular film. That's true. Now, in case you're tuning in for the very first time to the Good Trash Genre Cast, we need to tell you something. This is not a review show. It is an analysis show, and that does mean there will be spoilers, and you will find out what happens to Butch and Sundance at the end of the movie. So you've been warned about that, but we'll... Spoiler alert for... uh... Easily Googleable historical figures. Yes. But what we will do, though, is give you the briefest reprieve from those spoilers. If you want to listen to part of the show, then catch the movie and finish. And it looks like this. We have a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema. Then we have our thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which are spoiler-free. Then we play a game which might involve just the gentlest of spoilers um, of this film and other films surrounding it. And then lastly, we get down to business and all spoiler bets are off. And you find out that the whole time, Butch was a sled. And that's when we get down. Huh. And yeah, which was the sled? So, so Swiss Army Man was just a remake. Oh my God. Got him. You got me. You got, got me. him. You got the tiny, quiet throat laugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, all the warnings and uh, disclaimers ahead. I guess we can start with the synopsis. Let's hear that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Okay. <laughs> I think you got him unaware. I was ready, but it's a weird synopsis. Wyoming, early 1900s. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are the leaders of a band of outlaws. After a train robbery goes wrong, they find themselves on the run with a posse hard on their heels. Their solution? Escape to Bolivia. That's pretty much the whole movie. That, that's the rundown. Of the yeah. whole John Carpenter's Escape to Bolivia. Ooh, mm. I'd watch that. Mm-hmm. Are there monsters, or is it just a uh, kind of assault on Precinct 13 type thing? Um, yes, both. Okay, there Mo- we go. Monsters assaulting Precinct 13. We got, we got in Bolivia. We got in Kurt Bolivia. Russell back, right, though, right? Oh, yeah. Kurt Russell as Butch. Here's the thing. And uh, oh, what's his name? I can't think of his name. Is David David Green? David? Uh... David Allen Green? No. Oh, um. Oh, my God. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know you're and they li- about. he's in all the Carpenter stuff. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, David. Keith David. Keith David. Oh jeez. Yeah, it's Kurt Russell, Keith David. It's uh, <sighs> yep. Assault on Bolivia. Okay. Precinct uh, Greenlit. 
<laughs> don't know why I said precinct. <laughs> precinct. I, was still about, I was still thinking about Assault on Precinct 13. And then I started <laughs> thinking. Green Book. Look, as soon as this conversation started, I started thinking about Kurt Russell's old snake Pliskin, and that's really all I've been able to think about for the last three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I was in another place. I guys. guess we need to do Escape from New York at some point. Yeah, probably. It's kind of, yeah. it, it's been looming over us. We'll get to it eventually. We, we've done a good chunk of the uh, Carbon do- to Oeuvre. Yeah. The video game version, you know, Metal Gear Bolivia. Metal Gear Bolivia. Oh shut. <laughs> yes. Oh. Daddy likes. <laughs> hey, we spent a lot of time not talking about Butch Cassidy of the Sundance Kid already. Uh, um, yeah, I'm going to be in my own court over here tonight. Does anybody want to talk about this movie? I do. Okay, but, well, uh, go ahead. Let's hear your thumbs up. Thumb, this, is, yeah, I mean, you. This is near and dear to your yeah, heart. Yeah, I Arthur. love this movie. Persuade I mean, us. It is an all timer for me. Um, and I, I don't know why, you know, it's one I kind of came to, I think I, I found it on DVD in high school or college. I don't remember. And I, and I picked it up and I watched it and, and I really fell in love with it right away. So this was not a you and dad movie. No. Okay. Yeah. This was when I came to my, that my dad probably never would have watched this as a Western. Too right? slow. Yeah. 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 It's not a John Wayne Western, right? I mean, this isn't John Wayne clearing the yeah, trails. This is a very different film. This isn't Gene Autry. This isn't, you know, it's not Clint Matt Eastwood Dillon. either. Yeah. yeah. I would have bet. A lot of money that this film was made in like 1974, because it is a 70s movie for sure. 69, oh, yeah. though. It's a heavy precursor. I mean, it's right there at the top of that new Hollywood movement, right? And, yeah. And I think it has those shades all over it. And that's, I think, that's Decades really... Decades are arbitrary anyway. They are. That's uh, fair. Especially the way film moves. Um, and, and that is one of the reasons I really do enjoy it. The more I've learned about the new Hollywood and, and kind of the this overarching narrative that really influences all of these films at, at that period in time is just fascinating to me. Uh, and, and Butch and Sundance is a really good example of that, I think. And, and stylistically, I love it. I love this kind of very new wave inspired uh, opening that we get and this kind of artistic flourishes that we see early on. I, I think there's a lot of great work of, you know, f- setting up foreshadowing and then the way the film is shot to kind of cage in these characters to kind of insinuate very early on, you know, that they're locked in this the system they don't really agree with and they're trying to figure out how to get out of. Um, and so I, I think that coupled with Robert Redford and Paul Newman's chemistry, uh, their, their dynamic together, their banter back and forth, um, really sets the stage as a precursor to influence like Clooney and Brad Pitt. Um, and so I, I think it's that got all that going for it. Um, I, I do like the chase sequence. I know some people, you know, will, it'll come up, I'm sure, but it, it can go back and forth for people. It does go on for a good chunk of the movie, but I kind of like this, uh, this, uh, fleeing of the impending, uh, inevitable future that they have. And so I, I really appreciate all that. I like the, uh, the montage work in New York when it just, it just becomes like a five minute montage sequence. And so that's all really interesting to me. Um, the, the way it plays out in Bolivia is fascinating. The way the characters arc, you know, Newman sets himself up to be a, this just real tough guy, but he's just a real silver tongue talker. Uh, and, and when we find out, you know, he's never shot a guy is, uh, is a pretty uh, interesting moment in the film. Yeah, the person that is like essentially his best buddy in the whole world had no idea. Yeah, because that's how good he has been at like cultivating this personality for himself. Yeah. And I love the way he builds that. And Newman's so just organic in that moment. Uh, and this whole thing is their dynamic flourishes. I mean, these guys have rode together. Who knows how long? But we know they've been together for a long time. And then there's just a quiet night at a at a, at a brothel at a. At a you know, whorehouse that they, uh, they make those reveals that, Oh, my name's, you know, this and my name's that, uh, something, you know, they've never found out before. And, and then throwing in the character of Etta, uh, is just another interesting dynamic, I think in their relationship. And so I, I appreciate quite a bit of what, uh, 
George Roy Hill is doing here uh, in in Butch and Sundance. And so, yeah, to me, it's it's very near and dear. It's an probably an all timer for me. I really do just appreciate the way it's all put together. Um, I was actually reading reviews today. I know Ebert didn't really care for it. Pauline Kale didn't really care for it. And I think they're citing a lot of the same things, you know, the kind of inconsequential dialogue, the, the extended chase sequence doesn't really work. But at the same time, I, I was kind of thinking to myself, if this was in a foreign language, I think uh, the uh, their opinions on it might have been swayed a little differently. There is. that. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk Just, more on that later. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to get into those moments a little later because there's something I want to talk about that Hollywood does with artistic flourishes. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's great. I, I really do love it. I really appreciate it. And I've seen it multiple times. I got to see it on the big screen. Uh, the whole, the, the dual train sequences are just, they're funny. Yeah, I think the good. humor here is really good. So I, I mean, I can see the flaws. If you think that the chase is too long or you don't like where it goes, that's fine. But for me, it works. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, your rebuttal, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, I, I, Arthur brings up a good point about the chase. I, I like things about it. I, again, this representation of the, the the chase is this like thing that they cannot get away from because it's not really a chase so much as it is a very long walking away um and again they can just see the law on the horizon the entire time like there's never a shootout they never come within a mile of each other um, but i i like that aspect of it, arthur that you're right it, it does kind of foreshadow where their story is going that this way of life that they have been pursuing is over it's it's done um, and uh, the, Butch and Sundance, very famously, if you're not aware, listener, had the longest, uh, most successful uh, streak uh, of any heisters, uh, train or bank robbers in the West. Uh, they went longer than anybody. Um, but the story ends the same for everybody. It's that is not a life that uh, y- you can get. You can get away with like two or three, and nobody will keep looking for you. You can't get away with that many. And think that you're going to get away with it. Uh, so obviously, the, the, this this fate looming on the horizon for them, I, I agree. Like uh, thematically, is really cool, but it just goes on for so long, and and that's kind of the feeling I have uh, about the whole movie. Is it just keeps going. Um, it, it never justifies that two hour runtime for me. And I, I think you do bring up a good point, Arthur. That um, film film critics, especially those who are like you know, kind of working adjacent to the studio system. I, I think you're right. They are less forgiving of indulgences like that in a studio film than they would be in something coming uh, either from, you know, international cinema or from independent cinema. Uh, those really kind of capital A artistic flourishes, I think you're right. They are less forgiving of that sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, pretension uh, within the studio system. Um, and that, I think that's an interesting point you bring up, that there is a little bit of a, a, a double standard running through some film criticism that way. Uh, that said, it was I also saw that Eber didn't like it, and that was very gratifying for me. That made, allowed me to be like, okay, I'm not stupid. This is I'm, I'm not an idiot for not liking this. Because Arthur liking this is, you know, not uncommon. This is a very popular movie. It did really well when it came out. It has a large legacy. I mean, that's why we're talking about it as an anti-trash Western. It is kind of considered one of the really good ones. Uh, and I think a big part of that has to do with when it came out, Westerns were still pretty popular. I mean, the, the Western hadn't told, it was on its way out, but it, you know, it hadn't gone entirely out of fashion yet. And to have this kind of anti-Western uh, with these big name leads, both very handsome, literally two guys famous for being handsome. I mean, that was kind of, not to besmirch either of them, I think Newman and Redford are both really fantastic actors, but they're also famously 
Drop Dead Sexy. Um, so, of course, I mean, it's a big movie, but I think the way it operates as a Western is very interesting, if nothing else. And we'll get into that when we get into analysis. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how this functions as a Western. But the execution itself just doesn't work for me. I also do like that opening, Arthur, this kind of slideshow, this uh, this old-timey uh newsreel type thing we get at the beginning this the sepia tone we get until ah now the movie is starting and it springs into color it's a flourish that doesn't really mean anything to me though i i guess um and it's a film that just doesn't sit for very long i mean as soon as it's over it's gone from your mind for me um there, there wasn't a whole lot of there compelling me back into the, to think about the film because once it was over i was just like well, okay that's the thing i don't have to watch again uh, and I, I had seen this film before and I, I didn't really remember whether or not i liked it and now i can see why because i don't dislike it by any stretch of the imagination it just doesn't linger with me um and, and hopefully as we get through analysis maybe i'll be able to kind of put a put a reason as to why, but I, I see what's there. I see what's likable about it, but uh, no, it never really draws me in emotionally. Um, I know, I know the ending of the movie. Uh, so the stakes, I know what the stakes are and I've just, eh, uh, the relationships aren't enough, whether it's um, the character of Etta, you mentioned uh, Arthur, who is played really, really great by Catherine Ross. I mean, I like her performance a lot too. I like Redford and uh, Newman's performances. I like the three of them together a lot. It's just we don't get enough time of the three of them together, I feel like, is a big hindrance for me. But, again, maybe we'll get there in analysis and figure out what's holding me back. Dustin, what about you? I, th- I know you're a little bit more lukewarm on it yeah, as well, correct? I-, I feel pretty middling about it. Th- this was a movie that I do remember being on a lot when I was a kid. It was sort of in that list of Saturday matinee westerns that my grandfather and I grew up or I grew up, he was already growing up at that point, being my grandfather. That's how that works. Uh, Is that how it goes with vampires, too? I wasn't uh, sure. Yes, even with vampires. Um, the, the, they're still our generations, and they tend to be sequential. But not always. There are exceptions. But uh, <laughs> Oh, brother. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah, it was on, but I don't think I'd ever sat through the whole thing. I would watch, and I, I, I sort of you know knew about it. I knew it existed. And as I was watching the movie, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this bit. And I realized I probably never watched it more than five, ten minutes at a go ever in my entire life. And uh, that being said, now having sat through the whole movie, I'm glad I have. And I, I think it, it works in many ways. I think it's, it's, it's not bad. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's – there, there's not a lot of there there for me. It, it's just it, – it's – okay. I like their chemistry. I like this as a buddy movie. I, I like that idea. I can definitely see William Goldman's screenwriting talents all over this movie. I love the uh, character uh, that's uh, the sort of foreman of the mind that they go work for towards the end of the film. He's great. Who is – whose dialogue is every bit of an anticipation of Wallace Shawn's Vizzini character in The Princess Bride. Morons, he says. So good. I mean, then there's several places in there where I'm like, I just want Wallace Shawn playing this character is what I really want more than anything. I've put together throughout this recording that William Goldman wrote the screenplay for The Princess Bride. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Dustin. That Sorry. would have been helpful context. Um, yeah. You didn't know that one. No, I didn't know that one. Surprise. I don't know anything that happened before 1985. Okay, oh, well, fair that's enough. That's probably true. He just recently passed away, and it was kind of all over the news and world, so I just assumed. I'm sorry, Arthur. Out. My country's on fire. I haven't been paying attention to everything that happens. <laughs> you bleed Twitter, so I just assume you have your finger on the pulse. <laughs> it turns out that you can overdose on Twitter, and eventually it just stops meaning anything. <laughs> you just just be, you, white noise. Yeah, you just become a, a, a medium for the information to get out into the universe you don't actually retain any of it <laughs> but so yeah I, I find those those things going on there I, I do like the chase it is it, it feels very much um and Catherine ross is sort of a great sort of touchstone for this film because it feels like the graduate a lot that the in, in the same sort of laconic yeah. sort of pacing that you experience with the graduate uh which she also stars in mm-hmm. you you definitely experience with this film as well and uh, as a Western, and doing that sort of, this is just the bits and pieces that this is like the marginalia. These are the extra bits. Yeah. As a Western, and I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a neat exercise. But at the same time, it feels kind of like an exercise. Well, this is the downtime stuff you don't see in the other westerns. Right. right. Yeah. 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 You, you get the the hits of the chase, but you don't get the full extended. Uncut version of the chase, which is what you get here. It so does resonating in those moments. It does open and close with the awesome, with the sort of standard Western kind of things. But the entire mushy middle of it is just, yeah, you know, it's Paul Newman riding around on a bicycle doing stunts. Right, very fun. I <laughs> I love the raindrops sequence. Yeah. It's it, fantastic. That is it, it is um, unexpected and fun. And again, very new Hollywood, very seventies. Yeah. Here's what I want. I want the E2 Mama Tombi version of this movie. I want it sexier. I want it to be about inadequacy. Uh, I want I want a sexier three way uh, a, a throuple. I want the, the movie about this this group being a throuple. This movie got made too early. That's that's what Dalton we've got to. Be writing some fan fiction this weekend. Oh, buddy, yeah, I am. Oh my! We I... open on Redford's mustache. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh golly. Okay, but yeah, so it, it's it's fine. Um, and it's, it's it's as far as a western goes, it is sort of this western comedy, but it doesn't really zing you with the comedy bits. So it's not like lightning fast. It, it's just these are the things that happen. I, I think about those two different train sequences and uh, the sort of meeting with uh, Woodcock, this poor guy who's in charge of guarding the uh, the moolah. Poor schmuck. Uh, and it feels like the two most unremarkable robberies that they committed. It's just, you know, they, they just happen to be of the many, many that sort of gained them fame and fortune and reputation. It, it's It's two very, very unremarkable in any way except where they happen to have gotten chased again chased for a long time and chased in a way that they couldn't escape and chased in a way that there there were some casualties in the gang but they got chased and they got away and so it, it it's it's even then it's it's anticlimactic the whole thing's anticlimactic and the climax itself is an anticlimax i do love that ending yeah it's great but that's that is the sort of again very just laconic again lost generation mm-hmm. kind of feel um, that the movie's trying to capture and yeah I mean I'm like okay let's let's do the graduate as a western you know and so obviously Dustin Hoffman wouldn't work so what do we do next you know Robert Redford Paul Newman that works for me and uh, Catherine Ross that works for me and some good bit players and character actors great and uh, William Goldman so. It's it's fine, it's fun, but it didn't exactly blow my hair back, I guess is what I have to say. Yeah, yeah so uh, I'm kind of middling uh, about all that. Well, there we have it. 
All right. All right. Well, time to do uh, Dalton. Tell us uh, where we can find all the all the conversations about this movie. Ah, uh, yes. If you too would like to be a medium for the the dark magics with the K that are the internet, or you... Nick Sanford. That's true. Uh, I am also a medium for Nick Sanford. Uh, go back and listen to that Titanic episode for a uh, a lengthy. Uh, fugue state for me uh <laughs> if you want to let the internet move through you you can find us on twitter that's at good underscore trash uh but that's going to be the best place to follow us online um our our dear sweet beloved keith and smith is uh, getting a, a facebook listeners group off the ground uh, i don't know what the progress on that is uh, i just know that he wants to do it uh, i'm cool. not on facebook so i don't know what's happening with that i will never be on facebook uh but you know if you are um that's out there so maybe find that. You don't have to get involved in social media. I would, in fact, encourage you not to if you're not currently. Um, so you maybe you're asking yourself, what do I do, Dalton? Great question. Here's the answer. Uh, send us an email, goodtrashhonorcast at gmail.com. Uh, even if you are on social media, that's still going to be the best way to send us your long-form feedback. Uh, but if you just want to stay out of that rat race, that's the best way to do it. You can, of course, rate, review, subscribe to the show. However you put this in your ears, you've listened to a podcast before. That's this part where I tell you to do that. Uh, this is also the part where I ask you for money. Hi, it's me. Can I have money? Patreon.com forward slash GTM <laughs> is where you can get more info on giving us money uh, so we can keep being internet beggars. Um, we're, look, we're not going to stop doing the show. It's We're, we're pot committed at this point. We've got to hit 10 years. We've gone this far. Uh, Dustin does not look happy about that. I'm sorry, buddy. Uh, yeah, we need to just stick, uh, stick yeah, we, around for one more for about four and a half more years. We've really got to re-up his contract because, him yeah, in. he keeps trying to get out. He's, we've got to, he's yeah. negotiating with other podcasts locally. We got to keep trying yeah, to do his own thing. We've got a real KD situation on our hands. Yeah, we got to lock him down. It. I, yeah. I trade lives every five years. I'm not used to sticking around <laughs> one place this long. I've noticed that about you. Sorry about it. Uh, yep. Yeah. That's that's where you give us the money. Um, I got the subscribes. Yeah, I guess we're done. Uh, oh, goodtrashmedia.com. That's where you can find literally everything we've ever done. Uh, archives for shows we're not recording anymore. Um, the other shows on our network, like The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, which they just released a Christmas special in January nice. today. Noise. It is two and a half hours long and features a full 20-minute, uh, very lore-heavy opening. Uh those those boys are on some alt podcast shit over there. I'm telling you, I I we really opened the door to some weirdness on this network with the praise down from Heath and Alex. I'm all for it. I'm a fan. It is very different from what we're doing, and uh, I like that. Uh, so if you if you like your uh, podcast comedy real weird and uh, high concept, you got to go over to praise down with Heath and Alex. Now we're done with uh, social media and plugs. Okay, well if we're done with that. It's time to play the game. It might feel good. It might sound a little something, but damn the game if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game. She's got game. We this week's game, game is our favorite American folk heroes we'd like to see in film. That's right. Favorite American folk heroes we'd like to see in film. Brought to you by Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were murderers. <laughs> yeah. And Check it's out. very interesting how we dole out the title folk hero in this country. It's weird. <laughs> Murderer. Anti-establishment means a lot to a lot of people. That's true. And I got a lot of, look, hey, it's me talking here, gang. I just, it's it's weird how many of us look up to anti-establishment heroes and then go to work every day. That's all I'm saying. Well, uh, there's not many trains left for me to rob, so I, I guess mean, I'll just... Well, uh, I'm glad they're the only ones that we really celebrate from the West. You know, we don't do Jesse James or Billy the Kid or... No. 
No, not really. Or an entire run of gangsters oh. in the 30s. Oh, oh, so many. Wait, we do. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Um, folk heroes, uh, real or fictional. And uh, whoever you want to pick for a movie, I go to you first. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number first selection? I am going to go with the one and only Honest Abe Lincoln. Uh, pre-president when he was wrestling people out in the woods and doing his thing and all those kind of fun legends and folklores that have built up around him. Wasn't Hunting vampires. A, well, he was a sickly child, wasn't he? Yeah, who knows? Who can know. be sure of anything? I, I haven't read a history book in about 15 <laughs> years. <laughs> I just, Did they make a movie about it? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, a, I, I get you, though. Pre-president Lincoln, uh, I'm not reading a lot I mean, of history. He's got a reputation days. about him and the things yeah. he did, the kind of bigger-than-life character that he was. Lawyering. When he went yeah. to Hogwarts. Yeah, when he went to Hogwarts and the, the transfer to the American Winnie or Lilliviny or something. I, I can't... <laughs> Lilimony, I don't know. I, I've gotten out See, of See, I didn't thing. actually know there was an American Hogwarts. Yeah, they did the whole thing on the website. Um, oh, anyway, yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I think it's just a lot of fun, you know, and we've got a couple recently movies about him. Titular Lincoln. Uh, also a good the one. titular Abe Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Also a good one. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I, I think there's a lot there you can do. It's kind of this Robin Hood type of, you know, I don't know. It's, I don't know. It's just kind of a Daniel Boone type movie, I guess. Yeah, uh, I'm into it. I'm just dropping other folklore legends to uh, lift up this guy. Um, but that's my first pick. Killed him a bar when he was only three. Very good. Um, a Abe, A Abe Lincoln. Uh, so what do you say, Dalton? What is your number first pick? Well, I uh, wanted to get at least President one. President of the Union States. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to get at least one Oklahoman in here, if at all possible. Uh, and I went to one of my... Uh, very favorites, and that is Bass Reeves. Do you guys know about Bass Reeves? I don't. Bass Reeves was a bad dude uh, in the cool way. Bass Ray Reeves beat up his slave master and ran away to Indian territory and learned all the languages. So when America got to Indian territory and said, we own this now, uh, we need U.S. Marshals who speak the language and know the land, he was like, that's me, dude. I've been here. He was the... Most gunslingingest, outlaw catchingest U.S. Marshal that ever was. Uh, he was so committed to the job that when his son got indicted for murder, he went and got him. Now, is he the inspiration for Rooster Cogburn? No, uh, not as far as I know. Bass Reeves is just cool as hell. Uh, hmm. Doesn't have a movie whatsoever, uh, probably because he's a black man in America. Um, that is usually how that happens. There it is. You missed, yeah, you missed the part where he, did. he beat up his uh, slave master. I did. Uh, just kicked the shit I out of him. I tuned out away. once in a while. No, it's all right. We look. We've been on the show. If you look up a picture of Bass Reeves, though, just do it. He's got a great mustache. Just an all timer. Um, I, I could literally just list all of his accolades, and it would be the rest of this show. I mean, they're they're pretty wild. I'll give you. A, oh, here we go. Uh, he is credited with arresting more than 3,000 felons and shot and killed 14 outlaws in self-defense. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, cool dude. Uh, self-defense in quotation well, marks? Probably. Probably. Uh, well noted uh, as a, a writer and shooter and a navigator of cultures. Yeah, Bass Reeves. Very cool guy. All right. I like that pick a lot. Uh, my number first pick is, oh, I keep going back and forth, but I think I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Johnny Appleseed. That's what I'm going to go with okay. first. And maybe, right. maybe my best pick first instead of last, but nonetheless. Because um, I'm still formulating my list inside my head. But I I love, you know, I like the Fern Gully kind of movies. I like the sort of, you know, very, very close to nature kind of movies. I, I like the, I like the 
Fangorn Forest parts of Lord of the Rings, and I want that sort of American fantasy tale about this guy who is a shepherd of the trees here in the United States, planting trees and sort of beginning a, a possible sort of ecological sort of green movement in American history. That sort of gets forgotten and folk heroized, and, but I, I definitely think I want it more of a fantasy movie. I want it more of a sort of a weird kind of surreal, he's a, he's a, he's a crazy person um, who imagines what he imagines in his isolation. And uh, I I want that John Chapman slash Johnny Appleseed movie. That's that's my first selection there. I'm into it. So that's number first. Number next, what do you say, Arthur Gordon? Look, I like heist movies and I like bank robbers. I don't know what you want from me. I was going to say John Dillinger. He's had his time. I want a full on uh, Pretty Boy Floyd and uh, Babyface Nelson pair up. Uh, they usually get brought in as like side characters in these other movies with Bonnie and Clyde and stuff. Hey, but they did their own thing for a while. Uh, notable and uh, notorious in their own right. Um, and you kind of got a pretty stock archetype type film set up there, you know, just kind of making the folk hero revolting against the machine, what have you. Um, but there's yeah. not enough movies made about the 30s. No. Uh, what, not, th- there's movies made about like the city centers in the 30s. There's not enough movies reminding you just like how much it was still the Wild West. Yeah. And, and the Wild West had, you know, been over for 30 yeah. years. It was basically on still. And, uh, you know, George Nelson has that great uh, bit in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and so I, I, I'd just like to see something done. I can't remember. I think it may be Pretty Boy Floyd who's actually buried in Oklahoma. One of them is. I can't remember. I think they both hit out here. But, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. One of them might be One of them actually here. interred here. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's just something that's always kind of appealed to me. And that's probably why I like Butch and Sundance. Something. I, I, there's just something really interesting about the way we spin these kind of tales about the these bad guys mm-hmm. uh, and, and like Dalton hinted at earlier. So I'm just really interested in that myself. So, all right, that's a good number next pick. What is your number next pick? Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, my number next pick is Ira Hayes. Um, look, it's fucked okay, up. That, Johnny, look, it's fucked hey. up that we got a Chris. Okay. Kyle. <laughs> it's fucked up that we got a Chris Kyle movie before we got an Ira Hayes movie. That's a I'm, nice pick. I know. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a big stance here. It's messed up guys. Ira Hayes, uh, if you don't know, was at the Battle of Ujima. was one of the guys in the picture of the flag raising, not the actual flag raising. Look, it's a whole thing with the flag raising. He's one of the guys in the picture, didn't like being famous and being sold for war bonds, uh, and ended up dying of alcoholism. Well, in a bar fight, probably. Mm, yeah. But as a result of, you know, uh, alcoholic behavior. Uh, it is a deeply tragic story. Uh, Adam Beach played uh, Ira Hayes really well in uh, Flags of Our Fathers, Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, that whole movie should just be about Ira Hayes, though, um, because the most interesting parts of that film are all about him. There's actually a really great I've I've mentioned the the podcast Friendly Fire on this show a couple of times. Uh, they just did a really cool uh, two parter about uh, Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags for Fathers, um, and they pointed out something that uh, I very much agree with. And yeah, it's that Ira Hayes is the most interesting character in that movie, uh, and is a tragic figure in American history. Uh, that we do a disservice to ourselves by not remembering, um, especially, uh, you know, when we think about the way uh, Native American uh, war veterans are treated today in the year 2019. Uh, what a what a weekend we had, uh, America. Great job. Just, everybody's doing great. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, Ira Hayes had a film made about him called The Outsider, where he was played by a white man. Um, got a song written about him. Johnny Cash performed it. Good song. Um, a sad song, not yes. a movie. Good, uh, not a movie. And 
a guy who was considered uh, outcast uh, by the Pima peoples for, you know, being way too friendly with the American government and then was, you know, not treated very well by the American government simply because he was here first. Um, mm. So a, a tragic figure uh, and uh, somebody who lived a life, man, who who lived a big life and uh, deserves better than we have given him. So that's my second pick, Ira Hayes. Excellent pick. I'm keeping this Native American train going with Sacagawea. Um, I just I want a Sacagawea movie, not a Lewis yeah. and Clark movie. Hell yeah! I want Sacagawea. I want background. I mean, obviously, we're going to fictionalize a lot of this sort of stuff anyway, and uh, just what she's struggling with as she's guiding uh, these two white guys to the Columbia River there on the West Coast, and uh, sort of looking forward to what you know what could be anticipated about that. I I, I want a a real sort of uh, American reflection on Native American genocide, and I think Sacagawea is a great sort of central character to do that, and. Just someone we, we we sort of name drop, but we don't really know anything about her. Oh, she's the one that took them there because she knew stuff. But what if we told a story about her? What if we really gave it the hard, you know, excellent sort of Hollywood epic treatment? That's what I want. Um, a Sacagawea the movie. Um, again, not Lewis and Clark. I want them secondary. I want Sacagawea yeah, to be the one. Not who, their movie. Who carries that film? So that is my number next pick. What is your number last pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Uh, my last pick is going to be Amelia Earhart. Um, I think there was a movie a few years ago with uh, Hillary Swank in it about Amelia Earhart. I believe so. But that's just such an interesting story, especially as a kid, to hear this you know female pilot who just kind of disappeared. Uh, and so that mystery that kind of surrounds that story was always kind of interesting to me. And you know, if you want to have some fun with it, you could do like a Roland Emmerich type uh, conspiracy theory movie where she, she does get into the Bermuda Triangle and it just gets all sorts of bonkers. I'm into it. Uh, and, and it's just wild and maybe there's aliens or ghosts. I don't know. Uh, you could have some fun with it though because I, I think there's just something about that story that captures our attention as an audience and, and as a, a American culture. You know, there's something there that's really interesting. And so we love us a trailblazer and we yeah. love us an unsolved mystery. We do. So it's a perfect combination, right? And so that would be my final choice, Amelia Earhart. I like that pick a lot. I've got a cousin, I guess. I was going to say niece because she's so young, but she's actually a cousin who is uh, named uh, Amelia. Um, so, yeah, cool. I like it a lot. Um, to my left, sir, number last pick, Dalton Stewart. What do you say? My number last pick is another uh, escaped slave. It is Robert Smalls. Uh, Robert Smalls is the coolest um if you want to know a whole 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 lot about robert smalls uh the dollop with uh, uh dave anthony and gareth reynolds uh did a great episode about him uh it's actually one of my favorite episodes of the dollop and is how i came to know about robert smalls uh i'll just read you a, a, a little little tidbit from robert's uh wikipedia page uh he was an american who escaped slavery to freedom and became a ship's pilot sea captain and politician he freed himself his crew and their families from slavery during the civil war by commandeering a confederate transport ship in charleston harbor, harbor and sailed through a confederate blockade it's it's an insane story full of subterfuge and planning and just sheer badassery um, he uh, managed to convince Lincoln to accept African-American soldiers into the Union Army and Navy uh, and then went on to be a representative from the state of South Carolina, nice. Robert Smalls, certified badass. Uh, and again, that is the tip of the iceberg. This dude's story is buck wild uh, from life to death, including at one point coming to own the plantation where he was a slave. 
Wow. Robert that's Smalls. That's, that's pretty cool. Certified badass. Yep. Very, very Final cool. Final pick. Like it very much. My number last pick is a part true story, part what if story. It has to, you have to sort of begin with the background and some of the culminating moments of this particular person's life and then pretend like they didn't happen and what might have happened instead. And the guy that I've got is Henry A. Wallace. Who that? Um, he was a vice president of the United States under FDR. Okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. His, his third. The guy before Truman. The guy before Truman. Yeah. And so, uh, quite famously, uh, this guy, um, Henry A. Wallace was a former secretary of agriculture, a, a deeply sort of green, again, going back to my Johnny Appleseed stuff. I remember this story. Um, yeah. Also, um, very progressive. Um, FDR was nervous about how progressive this guy was. This guy did not care for racism. And was, yeah, was strongly fighting against sort of racial inequality well before uh, the sort of uh, popularized civil rights movement uh, that would gain steam 20 years later. And uh, was really already beginning to advocate for those kinds of real progressive, um, working for the working man, uh, very much working for the poor kind of changes. And of course, the bosses of the Democratic Party, because, you know, they're all corporate parties anyway, um, as they are were unable to control Wallace, they did not want him on the ticket for FDR's third term, or excuse me, fourth term. And so what ends up happening through a, a series of backroom deals and it's offered nuts. jobs and all of that, there are a series of votes that take place at the Democratic National Convention that it result in finally, finally, somebody nobody's ever heard of who's clearly a lackey, who's clearly unqualified for really anything, Harry S. Truman, becomes the president of the United States. Now, Harry S. Truman is the guy who continues with the sort of McCarthyism and McCarthyism. McCarthy scares and whatnot that ends up occurring through the 1950s um, is a much more conservative sort of move than Wallace and, of course, drops the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end World War II. What if Henry A. Wallace had stayed on as vice president for FDR's last term, FDR dies, and then Wallace finishes out his term? What America could we have possibly painted? So it's like, what if Hitler had lived, but this is what if Wallace had lived? Yeah, yeah. Or to take it over. Yeah, maybe America's better, you yeah. know. I mean, it, it, again, there's a much much more conciliatory sort of tone. I like there. alternate timeline stories. I'm a big fan. Uh yeah, give me I'm a, there for it. Yeah, give me a, a what if Rasputin didn't get invited into court. Give me a what if uh tol- Russia's got a whole bunch of weird like forks <laughs> in the road. Yeah. I just was look, 1890 to 1970, it's a real buckwild time for Russia if you haven't cracked up in a book. Uh, and there's so many times where it's just like one thing. Uh, what if Trotsky had made it, you know? Yeah. yeah what it, what? Germany, same way. I mean, every uh, society on earth has got a whole bunch of like four or five people. If things had shooken out a little bit differently, it'd be a much different world. It's like a. What if Ronald Reagan won an Oscar and never went to the White House? Yeah. Uh, the assassination of uh, Fran- uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, total fluke. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't have worked. It was an accident that it worked. Uh, and it just. History dictates that this is the thing that is going to happen sometimes. It's weird, dude. Especially the the, the Franz Ferdinand's a weird one. If you look at all the things that had to go wrong for it to actually end up working, it's wild. Hmm. Interesting. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our selections for American folk heroes, uh, known, well-known, and otherwise, uh, fictional and uh, not-so-fictional. And so we'd like to hear some of your selections via those magical means of social media. Already mentioned at the Yeah, I'm not doing it show. again. Um, Thank God. Yeah, uh, we're done with that. I don't like it either, guys. i got to be honest. We don't have to keep doing it. Let's stop talking about this. I think it's time to get down to business. Oh, my God. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to 
That's right, dear listener. Spoiler alert. Sometimes I cut out the social media segment if I need to cut time on a show. Totally fair. Yeah. Do you really? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't listened so long. I wouldn't know. I'm here, man. I live it. That's uh, funny. Oh, man. Uh, so anyway. Uh, yeah, we could do, do that one more time. Do that clean. Nope. Nope. Okay. No, you, I, I, you like the pool behind the curtain. Yeah, I do too. They do. They love it. Yeah. They love it. Hey, what I don't, behind this well, curtain? No, the question was whether or not I liked it. Do you like it? I like it. So I that's don't fine. care what you he keeps like. coming around every week, so I guess he likes it. <sighs> I'm just trying to get, keep you happy to keep them happy. I don't think I make anyone happy. Listener, tell Dustin you make him happy so he'll stop being such a fuddy duddy. Or he makes you happy. I think that's the issue, right? With me? No, Dustin makes the listener happy. Yeah, there's too many pronouns happening Arthur's now. on dangling modifier patrol here. Who's on first? <laughs> What's on second? I don't know who's on third. All right, let's talk about this fucking movie. Uh, yeah, well, I think the first thing I want to discuss, though, is a, is a point that you mentioned earlier, Arthur, and I think it's it's worthwhile, is that if this film had been in Italian, you know, and, and Visconti were behind it, and it were a, again, uh, sort of distancing kind of move towards the western um it might be better received by american film critics I, just say more about that I, well let's I, look I, I, mean, I like that idea let's look at it uh, and there's this thing that kind of happens in hollywood and, and i think really where we're at in the new hollywood go back up so you know there's this thing where directors are influenced by other cinemas you know we get a lot of the german expressionism brought in by hitchcock and that influences horror and it influences noir and and it influences Hitchcock's work itself, and then that kind of reciprocates back into Europe, and then the European directors are all starting to do their thing. And, and by the time we hit the 50s and 60s, we're kind of in a stalemate with American cinema because... Rut, I think is the word. Yeah, because the, the factory system isn't really working anymore, and then we have the major court case. I can't think of the name. Is it Paramount? The Paramount Accord. Yeah, uh, which essentially... A decree, excuse me, decree. Which gets rid of the monopoly that the theaters ha or the studios had on the theaters and it kind of changes the game. And I, and I think... They didn't do a very good job getting rid of that studio monopoly. It well, it, well, and the thing is, is the, the decree's in 47, so it's yeah. really not in place until 64, 65. That's yeah. how long it takes them to implement it. Because, you know, I mean, it's corporatocracy. It's a little different from the Disney... Because I, I was thinking about that the other day with Disney, but the, the, the you know they were buying up all the theaters and that was kind of the difference there. And I think... yeah. You know, there's problems with Disney, but that's another story for another day. Um, but, uh, you know, America's cinema is really at a, a, a crux point as far as creativity and, and American filmmakers that are coming up are starting to get inspired by the European cinema. And so it's coming full circle again. Um, and and uh, Katrina Longworth really goes into this on uh, uh, You Must Remember This uh, when she does her Charles Manson Hollywood series, mm. uh, which she really mm. explores kind of the rise of the... Hollywood counterculture guys like Warren Beatty are coming up, Redford's coming up, Newman's coming up, uh, and and they're kind of trying to buck the system that it's been the norm for so long. And we get these tales of the kind of lost generation, the outsiders, and they don't like the systems, they don't like the structures, and they're on the ride and they're trying to do their thing. And we get things like Easy Rider, and we get things like uh, Scorsese stuff in the seventies. But um, all those filmmakers are starting to incorporate all of these artistic flourishes that they've picked up from the new wave and that they've picked up from European cinema and the ultra violence enters the uh, equation. It kind of starts shaping uh, cinema. And, and a lot of that's incorporated, I think into Butch and, and, and Sundance and of watching it, you know, we got that silent newsreel thing, which is kind of cute, but, but even beyond that, when we actually first meet Butch and we first meet Sundance, I mean, when we first meet Butch, it's, it's completely quiet for quite a while as he's walking through this town, a lot of kind of slow, uh, still photography as he's walking through, sauntering around, trying to figure out the, the you know, what's going on. And it, it feels like a European 
type of movie, the way it's plotted, the way it's paced, uh, and even furthermore into uh, the relationship, you know, the stuff with Edda and the, the, the chase itself, it's very kind of drawn out. It's very methodical and it's very, um, I wouldn't say transcendental, but it, it does feel like it's very intentional in the way it's trying to pull you in. Whether it is intentional by, you know, George Roy Hill and, and William Goldman. Goldman, sorry, I forgot his last name. Um, hey, I didn't know who he was before this episode. That's so. fair. Um, but, you know, uh, you know whether or not that, that's intentional, that's the way it kind of plays out. And, and I think that influence of those artistic cinemas are there. And, and Hollywood's always had this thing of being able to pull these artistic flourishes, whether it's a long take, whether it's expressionism, whether it's a solar flare, uh, you know, whatever it is, and incorporate it into their films to kind of add a new element. And it's like this gelatinous blob, which is just absorbing it up to still put out this commercial art. Um, but I think a lot of that's in play in, in Butch and Sundance. And I think, you know, if it's in black and white and it was a foreign language film, I, I think initial reception might be a little different on it. I think this is where we get to why critics, especially critics uh, like Ebert and um, Pauline Kael, who who are working such an... I mean, film criticism is a different beast now. You've got dipshits like us doing it. You've got uh, film websites doing their damnedest to stay open uh, and, you know, functioning. But back in the day, I mean, you were kind of part of the studio system a little bit. I mean, you didn't work for them, obviously, but especially if you're an American film critic, you're reviewing every single film Hollywood's putting out. I, I think that's a big part of why they're less forgiving, because they see these flourishes that they've been watching for years get heralded by critics who are just writing for their local paper who don't get to go to Cannes, who don't get to go to, well, Sundance wasn't around yet, but you get the idea. But, I mean, New York had art house theaters. Exactly. You, you're, you're talking about big city critics who are in Chicago, New York, L.A., who are getting to go see these films before these flourishes are being seen by anybody else, and they see it be absorbed by the amorphous blob that is Hollywood. I think that's probably why there's a less of a willingness to give these flourishes a pass because they're like, no, 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 we get what these flourishes exist for in these other films. All we see it existing here for is the, the, the making of money. Uh, and I think that's probably where we get uh, a little bit less forgiveness from critics uh, in that regard. Yeah, I don't I don't know if the American press is quite that radical in the 1960s. I think Pauline Kael is Pauline sure. Kael maybe. Um, Susan, Susan Sontag maybe. But some of the rest, uh, you know, um, what's the big auteur guy has name? Saris. Saris, no. Okay, yeah. Uh, even though he loves the new wave, he's in love with it. I, no, absolutely not. Ebert, absolutely not. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I don't know. I feel like Ebert is is one to call out uh, flourish for flourish sake, uh, yeah. especially as it pertains to the studio system. But I also think that there's a way in which they they simply don't want to give their own cinema credit. There's a way in which they are in love with the new waves uh, of the of the various European cinemas, and they simply just don't want to acknowledge that sort of presence here. I was thinking about this um, as Arthur was saying it. There's a there's a there's a Michelangelo Antonioni movie called Red Desert, and I couldn't come up with the title of it, so I had to look it up on your phone. Thanks again, Dalton. Oh no problem. Uh, and uh, but Red Desert really, in many ways, in terms of style, narratively even, there are moments that are quite similar to what we're seeing in Butch and Sundance, and it's an earlier film, and uh, it's a super hyper-modernist sort of expression, and you, you, because it's set in a contemporary setting, and you know that there are these sort of strong modernist pretensions that are part of it, you say, oh, well, I'm looking at this thing for art, and when I'm watching my Hollywood movie, I'm watching this for popcorn, 
and that may be more the problem of it. You know, it's like keep your art out of my popcorn, and keep your popcorn out of my art to some extent. There's something. I was reading Pauline's review of of Butch and Sundance, and there's a a, a line in there where she's just kind of setting up everything she's talking about. She's talking a bit about cult film, and it, this may not be the actual review, or if it was from another essay that she had written or mm-hmm. what, because mm-hmm. she's referencing the cult cinema that's kind of setting up. Speaking of Easy Rider and some of those other films, uh, but she 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 has a passing line about how the the American art house is less of the foreign and is becoming more of the American films, and it feels like it's kind of that That's looking yeah. down at that i feel like what we're getting at too is uh, the difficulty with establishing a canon and i don't even mean like setting out to make a canon like an afi top 100 or anything like that or even the liturgy for a film studies course you know which is a, a, an idea we reference on the show literally every episode when you're just trying to say what is good you're establishing a canon to some extent and i think that's why it's almost always more useful to talk about films in context to other films. What is a film like this that we've already seen? What is a film like this that will be made later? Um, Because I think that's the only way to get at what does and does not work, because you're always, especially if you're reviewing, talking about a new release, the new buzziest thing, it's swept up in every goddamn thing happening the weekend it comes out. And you're saying that on the day, we're recording on the day, the 91st Academy Award nominations are announced, so this is a huge thing right now, where all of this is up, and you know, this is praised for a year, and then all of a sudden everybody's going to turn on their their lauded film because it's not the one they want. Absolutely. And I, I think that it all comes back down to, I can, t- I know Dustin's, uh, chomping he's, at the bit. he's chomping at the bit. I'm going to get to you in a second, buddy. I, I, I just, because I, I know as soon as I started talking about Canon, you were going to have something to say. Uh, but it's hard to talk about a film in the time it comes out. It, yeah, it is it only is. with hindsight that you can really uh, evaluate the artistic merit of something sometimes. And I think film especially, uh, that is the case. Not always, of course. Uh, but I, I think there are plenty of films that were like, this is great. And 30 years later, we're like, that's fine. It's okay. Why did we like that? Uh, Dustin, what are you thinking about over there? I think maybe the problem is this, the liminality of this film is that it's on the margins. It's on the edges. It's, it's, it's Western, but it's also on the edges of some sort of new wave, mm-hmm. art house, European cinema. And um, I think one of the things that critics and scholars – are very, very uncomfortable with, and we've talked about this before on the show, is the instability of our categories. That's another thing that sort of makes them nervous. And when they see something that, again, just sort of plays at the edges and doesn't say, okay, I'm going to go hard into making a Hollywood, you know, with a Hollywood actors and crew and all that sort of stuff, but it's going to be an Antonioni film because that's not what this film is. This film is not that. It is not a Godard film. But I'm going to take and lift from that. I'm going to apply those techniques and some of the same philosophical conceits and whatnot to my approach in a Western kind of film. And it's going to be fully an American film in the sort of vein of what we've been seeing up until this point. And it's going to be fully a Western in terms of the genre. But it's also going to be playing a little bit in the sandbox and making those categories a little just too fuzzy, a little too unstable. And that... They get territorial, like, no, 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 keep your film noirs out of my neorealism or whatever sort of, you know, in a recent conversation I heard a couple scholars having where someone lost their mind because someone would draw some parallels with what we see in, you know, Italian neorealism and the American film noir. And I'm just like, sometimes film noir did not just drink from the well of German expression. These nerds are still fighting about film noir. Oh, my gosh. I... 
I, Guys, I, there have been other movies made. Calm I wanted to down. crawl under my chair at a conference. I literally a month ago. Somebody needs to make film ago. scholars go to the movies more. Well, that's also true. Good lord! But I literally wanted to crawl under my chair because these two different um, full tenured professors were picking on this poor grad student kid. And, motherfuckers. and then arguing with each other about their particular set of oh boundaries that are hard and static regarding this thing. And I think maybe that's part of what um, Ebert tends to like his Westerns to be Westerny. And this is not a very Westerny Western. Yeah. And he likes okay. his art cinema to be art housey. But when it's sort of an art housey kind of kind of Western, that doesn't that that you know that, it doesn't click. That dog don't hunt. That, yeah, yeah. Especially, I'm thinking about him not does liking, not compute. Not liking Blue Velvet. It really is that that mixture of genre and art house. He he does frequently seem to be troubled yeah. by. And, and I I think Pauline Kale makes the better argument when she's talking about something of like French Connection, where she like she's like this movie bangs wangs. It's so good, but also it's fascist as hell. And I think she does a much better job of articulating why certain. It's not just a, mm, this isn't the right genre for, for Pauline Kael. She's always really good about articulating like the the analytical, thematic, the social reasons why some particular artistic flourish is incongruous with the content of the film. And I think that's always really cool uh, when a critic or a scholar is able to, because that's all any of us are doing when we're talking about media. We're just trying to articulate our opinion very well. What does this do? What 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 does this do for me? You know, what is this? Which buttons does this push? I, I feel like what we've been talking about is a good place to segue into uh, what makes Butch and Sundance a western and what makes it anti trash, right? I mean, we're we're doing this uh, big two month thesis on westerns. I, I think this is a good time to to break that open for this one because we've kind of been talking about canons and genre. Uh, I, I think, uh, well, I, I, as far as you know, what makes Danny Trash, I, I, I think it is just kind of that l- critical response it has now. You know, it's kind of earned its way into a canon. It's you know number seven in the greatest westerns of all time, or whatever. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. earned those places uh, through time, and is you know put in the put in the stripes for whatever reason. Whether it was just on repeat so much, like uh, it had a wonderful life that it just kind of got into the po- uh, cultural uh, consciousness. Um, but I, I think it kind of exists maybe in the same plane as uh, with Dustin's comparison, maybe like a drive, right? Mm-hmm. The art house genre thing that it's doing mm-hmm. um, where it's I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, it's a good establishing point if you're trying to talk to somebody about some of these techniques. But also if you're wanting to um, explore just a, a, a movement in cinema, such as the new Hollywood, which is a very pivotal part of American cinema. Uh, and I will give every conceit that this is, you know, because I, I really don't think Hill and, and the team set out to make this artistic Western. I really don't. I, I think it was just, you know, what it was. And um, I, I, I'll make that conceit that I think this is just very new Hollywood light. It was really kind of my intro into the new Hollywood. But it's it's kind of doing those things, but it never really goes full bore like you mentioned into you, one thing or the other. You know, you say new Hollywood light, but I don't see it as any less pretentious in terms – and I don't mean pretentious in a bad way, but I don't see it as any less pretentious than an easy rider or they shoot horses, just, don't It they, doesn't have that edge to it. The deer hunter. I, I, it I get doesn't what, have yeah. the edge. It's not like – It's not It's not hell of Transgressive. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, I, it's very melancholy. Yeah. And it's got that, that, it's got that little shootout at the end, but we don't have – I mean – if Arthur Penn directs this, if Peckinpah directs this, we're going to have that ultra-violent death scene. We're going to see yeah. exactly what happens, probably get a nice montage of it. But, you know, this 
feels kind of like a safe entry point into talking about a movement. You know, if I was going to try to engage with somebody about New Hollywood, I don't know that I'd rush out and show them Taxi Driver or, or if I'd maybe start with this to kind of get I a think feel this for is a good go. place. I get what Arthur's saying. Yeah. And I think this is a great place to start for that because it is a little bit training wheels on. I get what you're saying. And I, I think it is the transgressiveness. They're likable guys, with the exception of uh, the not a rape. Uh, that really took me out of the film. We'll get to I that. was not a fan of that. No, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, <laughs> I, I did double check. It's 73 on the AFI Top 100, the 10th anniversary list, the, yeah. the more recent update. So it's number 73. So I, I would say being on the AFI is like officially canonizing you. Uh, what makes it a Western? Because it's not that they wear cowboy hats. It's not that they're train robbers. I, I, I think it's something about uh, the chase of freedom, right? Yeah. I mean, they're continuously going west. They've gone so far west that everything's kind of done there. The well has gone dry that now they have to go to the new frontier, which is South America, which is Bolivia, uh, and try to you know find that that thrill again, find that thread of you know freedom. I mean, obviously, freedom's the big thing because they're they're running from the posse of all posses, the murderer's row of hunters and marshals and trackers and and so that that freedom is definitely there I and, think. and it's certainly metatextual that the western has run out and we've got to get into a different kind of space i mean there's yeah. definitely that working as well i think it's interesting that uh the the outlaws don't realize that they are and again i'm gonna name check it again uh because we're doing the westerns marathon the fantastic video game red dead redemption 2 which i finally <laughs> finished so i will hopefully be talking about on the show less uh is also firmly about the ways in which we keep trying to find the old times. We keep trying to go to the place that was like yesterday. Mm -hmm. And the crux, the, 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 the joke of it is... There is no place like yesterday, because yesterday's not how you fucking remember it, Butch and Sundance. It was never as cool and as sexy as you remember it. Uh, and it's interesting that outlaws and these outlaws being free stories don't realize that they are the heralds of law they're the heralds of bringing everything together they're the gay crashers that ruin everybody's free wheel and sex party because they show up and start shooting people and then you got to call the cops it, it is a, an interesting thing about the way we look up to outlaws it is bank robbers that created the fbi you know it, it is always the people living on the margins and again living on the margins is badass and also is hard and is usually something you're forced into by oppressive forces beyond your control so let's keep that in mind but especially as it pertains to the ways we romanticize living on the margins uh that lifestyle especially for westerns but really any story of outlaws they're the heralds of of the money men of the the bosses and uh oil men who are going to bring the hammer down on them a lot of the times because they're showing up right as those guys have showed up with big sacks of money. Nobody's there when it's hard to make money. It's only another uh, great uh, thing to mention right now is uh, Murder Mountain, this Netflix doc series I've been watching about Humboldt County, Northern California. Um, the start of the the weed growing there by the hippies, the criminalization of it, the violence of it, and how that's been changed with uh, the 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 what's the word I'm looking for here? The repeal of prohibition. There we go. Um, and it, it's the same thing. It's all fun and games when it's just the hippies out there doing the hard work. But once the uh, infrastructure's in, then you get organized crime because the infrastructure's there, so it's easy to take over and just start making money. Um, so it, it's interesting how how peaceable outlaws and outlaws who uh, have no compunction about doing violence come at loggerheads with each other and end up bringing about their own demise by the need to have somebody to say, quit shooting each other. 
Um, it's just an interesting thing about Westerns that I did find myself thinking about a lot while watching this movie. All right, excellent. Um, let's undo one of the sort of theoretical threads that sort of circles around this uh, film um, before we move into another point uh, constructively, and that is this this sort of queer reading that comes up all the time uh, with this particular film. And uh, it is like uh, th this film is somehow the precursor to Brokeback Mountain. It is sort of the thing that people um, start to argue um, because clearly Butch and Sundance are in love and there is this sort of love triangle uh, between themselves and Catherine Ross's character. And clearly there's there's definitely um, chemistry, affection, and attraction between Paul Newman and Catherine Ross, although she's technically with uh, Sundance. But that being said... I, guys, and I, all about finding these subtexts and reading them when they're not, and reading against the grain, and you know, the, we were talking about this off air. Yeah. We we love us a gay subtext on the show. Yep. Go listen to us talk about Point Break. It's the gayest film Catherine Bigelow's ever made, and For sure. she made Near Dark. Uh, yeah, I don't see it here. It's a pretty platonic friendship, as far as I can. That read is it. brothers in arms. Yeah, I want it to be gay. Yeah. I really do. Again, I brought up the throuple thing. I I want there to be more tension between that that love triangle, and there just isn't. Especially not the way there is in something like Point Break, where you just can't wait for Johnny Utah and Bodie to kiss. Like it, the the film wants you to see them kiss. Right. In this film, I I don't I don't know if it's. Because they're both so laid back that there's no like sexual tension, but they're so at ease with each other that it yeah. almost removes the subtext. Because if well, they're, they're an old married couple. Exactly. If there were a romantic subtext, they'd bicker more. There's really that's true too. Yeah. Yeah. They they have. There's nothing missing from that relationship, and I think that's where the really the the really great uh, gay subtext readings come from. Is they're pointing out the the ways that a relationship in a film is just written like a romantic relationship because those are kind of interesting. The, the way that 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 push and pull happens. Uh, but Butch and Sundance both feel really fulfilled uh, with their relationship just based on the way they're played by Newman and Redford, I think. And at the risk of sounding like uh, a fuddy-duddy a little bit and a, uh, like a stick in the mud. You often sound like one of those, so it's weird that you've uh, parsed well, this one re out. Regarding, again, these sort of gender <laughs> sexuality issues, um, that, that there's a weird obsession in our culture. We're all the time trying to find these sort of new ways of reading these films and this, you know, you didn't know, but this... The queering of heteronormative cinema. Yeah, the, the, all the time. And uh, again, I'm all for it. I think that's fine, and I think it's a good exercise, and I think it's useful and challenging, and I'm all, again, I'm, I'm, I'm positive, I'm pro. But there is also this weird way in which when we encounter then two same-gendered characters who are clearly very close, that we must somehow find some way. And it seems to Damn, me... Damn, we are about to sound like Fuddy Duddies, because I'm, I'm with you. It, it, it's an erasure of, like, platonic male love. That, that There's a time in which um, two female characters or two male characters or two characters beyond the binary, whatever the situation happens to be, but you find two characters together that identify in the same kind of way, and they just like each they other's must. They, they must. They have to. They, they have to want to bone, or they have to be boning. And... It's it's the same thing we get from like the you know internet fan cultures shipping characters that are very clearly you could see the writing staff like trying to set up a, a male female friendship and the internet will go so hog wild for it that these characters end up written together because the the writing staff can feel external pressure right mm -hmm. um, it, I I don't know that it comes from the same place necessarily I think it might come from a similar place yeah uh, because I think it's easy 
for look as Dustin said I agree it's important necessary and fun to complicate um heteronormativity uh, heteronormativity but I was just going to say the times that were even especially when we're queering uh old Hollywood cinema hell yeah that's a good time uh because Hollywood has never changed man everybody's been uh DTF uh since Jump Street, that's been part of the problem sometimes, uh, as we uh, talk about all the time on the show. But, yeah, I, I'm right there with you, because it, it certainly uh, starts to erase platonic friendships from uh, from our stories. And this is really where I'm going to get, again, sounding a bit stick-in-the-mud-y, but it, I think it's a real mistake. And I think it's honestly, it's a heteronormative move for queer theorists to force those two characters to be in some sort of sexual tension because that's exactly what classical Hollywood did every time you had a male and a female character on set. There always had to be that B subplot of that romantic triangle, and by forcing that it has to be in some sense sexual, that in fact is a regressive and heteronormative move because there are other deeper and many different levels of relationality that human beings can experience. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting. We, yeah. we, don't, we went about it. You went about it the way you went about it. But yeah, I, I think we're making the same point. Yeah. yeah. It's troubling. And I, I, I would just say, you know, make sure it's... And again, I am still open to hear the argument that sure. the, of, of the queer reading of this film. I know it exists. I don't know a lot about it. But it's it's not there, again, like it's in Point Break or even Fight Club. And yeah, we're talking about films from the 90s, so they're inherently like more sexual uh, than a film from the late 60s, but not always. And I'm not all that familiar with the argument for Butch and Sundance. It just comes up a lot. It comes up yeah. a lot. And, and I do know that there's a moment where they're in the hotels in Bolivia, and clearly they're sharing like the back headboard walls between the different rooms. And so we've got Sundance and uh, Catherine Ross together mm -hmm. in one room, and they're talking, and they sort of beat on the wall, and they sort of go through the wall, and you see Butch on the other side, and you know he giving Spanish words or whatever. crib notes. Yeah, he got yeah. his crib notes practicing for Spanish. <laughs> um, and there's a weird way which that kind of mirrors a, uh, a Rock Hudson Doris Day movie. Mm, okay. Right? Um, uh, Pillow Talk is what I want to say it is. And I remember thinking, that kind of looks like that movie, what movie is that? And I didn't look it up, and I don't actually care. But there's a movie where you see two different characters, and they're they're in bedrooms, and you don't really realize, it, and it turns out they're actually in bed together. And it yeah. doesn't sort of make that union. And so I wondered, okay, maybe that might sort of semi-suggest, sort of, kind of. I think it works. But, I mean, eh. That, you know, the editing doesn't quite work since they are, you know, on a on a parallel line, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're not next to each other. Uh, as you would see, I think Pillow Talk is what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. I'm... I want it. I want it to be there. Yeah. I don't. I don't feel like it's there. Sometimes it's not meant to be. Exactly. You know what? That's that's life. And look, I think it's look, okay for he, Butch he, and Sundance just to be buds. Cap and Bucky. Yeah. yeah. They want to do it. I'm there for that one. I'm not there for this one. So yeah. uh, while we're talking about sex, let's talk about that real gross scene where Robert Redford <sighs> pretends to be a pervert. Uh, man. Hey, don't kink shame him. Hey, hey well, <laughs> and again, it's, you know what? It's totally fine. It's totally fine that Etta and Sundance are into that. Do you, but movie? Don't do that to me. Don't, don't do that to us. Don't yeah. do that to me. Because yeah. you you know that William Goldman is writing the screenplay thinking he's being so fucking cute yeah. with this like implication of rape yeah. and like haha surprise it's and, consensual and force me to be complicit in by watching it right it, and, yeah and again it, it's like you can feel Redford uh, and who's the director again 
Uh, George Roy Hill. Yeah, you can feel Hill and Redford being like, it's fine, because Sundance is so handsome and charming, right? It's okay, guys. No, it's not okay. It's still creepy and upsetting to watch. I don't care for it. Uh, and that's, I don't know that we have anything else to say. No, about other that. than it's bad. I just wanted to make sure we talked move. about it. It's, it. it's a very 69 move. Yeah, it is. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Wish I had. Yeah, you did. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I you didn't. did. So last thing I you want... Didn't, did you see the glibber in my eye? Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about history, historicity. Oh, mythol- like the sexual act. <laughs> <laughs> yes, once in history there was a sexual act. The dawning um, of the age of Aquarius, Arthur. <laughs> there hasn't been one since. <laughs> The only one. There's a, there's a mythological sepia, <laughs> sepia tone moment where your mother and your father met, and it's never <laughs> happened since. Yeah. Um, but no, actually, that is sort of the point I want to make is I'm um, talking about the sort of mythology of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Again, the sort of Billy the Kid, the uh, Jesse James, these sort of bigger. The Bonnie than, and Clyde. The Bonnie and Clyde, the larger than life kind of moment. And the way I think the film plays with that. Um, now, let's be careful because whatever we say, it means we're probably going to have to push back Bonnie and Clyde being on this show by another four years. And I know Arthur really wants to do it. Oh, oh no, we're good. It's, okay. It's, All right. Let's I'm get not into married it. to I just know it's important. It's a good movie. I and thought I, you liked it a lot for some reason. I like it. I like okay. it most. I think it's got some interesting stuff in it, definitely. All right. Well, let's get into Bandits then. So, here, here okay. So, it opens up with that, uh, as you see that old sort of styled newsreel photo uh, footage of this is what their lives were this is who they were and now they were the most notorious the hole in the wall gang they were amazing and uh, you know now they're all dead and uh, then it goes on and it's got the subtitle uh, this is mostly true or something that's a very yeah. very cute little yeah. mm-hmm. um, subtitle that goes on there and then they have this they have the sepia tone moment where you see, uh, again, uh, Butch running through town, walking through town, trying to find Sundance, and you find Sundance in this moment, which is the absolutely classic, you know, uh, showdown in a saloon over a card game. Uh, we're gonna draw, you better back down kind of thing. Guy realizes this is the Sundance kid. Yep. He backs down, asks him, how good are you really? And he shoots the gun off of his belt and then across the floor. Yeah, this does. sort of amazing. It's very cool. And that's the last of those amazing moments. And then the sepia tone ends. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's a very cool touch. And then the sepia tone picks up again when they go to New York. Yep. And again, stolen and stills. You know, just sort of the classic, uh, amazing sort of image of the roaring, you know, United States uh, and uh, roaring technology of what's going on. I almost want to say the roaring 1920s, but we're about 15 years too early. Um, ah, yes. The dawn of the Gilded Age. Come and see our fancy electric lights. The gay 90s, fun, yeah. Fun fact, they uh, built those sets for another film and then... Uh, no kidding. Yeah, so they had to shoot still photography on them because they didn't want to have the motion on the sets or something like that. That's, oh, that's awesome. Interesting. Maybe like Hello Dolly or something. I can't remember. That's or something great. Like that, though. But yeah, it's great. You know, mm-hmm. but but telling it in those images and telling it as memories that again yeah. seem much more gilded, much more um, effervescent, much more um, what they say in the program, the pink cloud kind of you know sort of remembrance there. And then lastly, when it does cut to the freeze frame at the end, when Bush and Sundance go down and a hail of gunfire again we go back into the sepia tone and it seems to me that the film is uh stylistically constructing this is the mythology and really the the real butch casting the these are the things we actually know well they're pretty inaccessible yeah and what we would get access to is something that we would never really know yeah and so it is this sort of um 
inconsequential dialogue. It is sort of random conversations. It's a hey, it's the same guy guarding the same truck to or you know the same yeah. car to to uh, train run, heist run, in a row. Run. Well, and then it, there's an entire cavalry regiment hiding in this very small box car. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Like one, you know, they 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 come up with a trick one time. They try to catch him. They had a great trick, but they and they were really good at pursuing him. But really, in the end, they got away. It, it, it's it's just sort of you know and. And you know, and and there's a moment in the Bolivia sequence that I think is most telling of the sort of just uh, what's the word I'm looking for the mundane nature of it, the, the, the quotidianness of their lives is when they're talking and they're having these conversations around dinner, and there's no dialogue, there's no audible dialogue. They're yeah. clearly talking. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the one of the heists. There's music that's playing, but there's no dialogue. It's like a musical montage because it doesn't matter really what they're saying. It doesn't really matter what's going on. Just you know, life's going on. They're robbing some banks. They're going out to eat, and that's life in the life of these sort of bank robbers. And we we ought and it's sort of is, is an anti romantic move. Mm-hmm. It feels to me uh, more than anything else. And so I, I find that interesting. You know, I don't yeah. know. Is there anything more we want to say about that kind of the, again this sort like of formalism that. of the text? I, I, I'm still hung up on thinking about the stories we tell about outlaws and stuff. Um, the through line being that they're all pretty and white usually. Um, I mean, and that's that's who becomes famous, right? Bonnie and Clyde, pretty. Uh, Butch and Sundance, pretty. Pretty Boy Floyd. I, I can go on. We're not going. Jesse James, Billy the Kid. All, all well, mm-hmm. Billy the Kid's kind of well, yeah, he's cute. Um, but I think this is what it circles back to is our culture, whatever this thing that we have as Americans, um, back all the way to the early 1800s, basically, as long as we've had photographs, this thing that we have that says, Hey, wait a second, that person's pretty. They don't have to do this. They're pretty. They can do something else. They could be in pictures. Uh, and and it's just something, I mean, Christ, Casey Anthony. There's something in our mm-hmm. dumb, dumb American culture we cannot help but be drawn to pretty criminals. It, it it baffles us, it mystifies us, and we cannot help but immortalize them and tell their stories, which is, you know, all they want at the end of the day. That's the only reason somebody becomes a pretty outlaw who shouts their name as they ride out of town is so people will know who they were. Uh, and it is interesting... Again, I'm not about to get on my high horse about, you know, glorifying violence or outlaws or anything. We've established a couple of times that outlaws are cool. We're not going to pretend otherwise here. But there is something interesting about when and why and how we forgive law-breaking and murder. Uh, when when we choose to demonize people and when we choose to memorialize them. And I think Butch and Sundance does a smart call of saying, there's stuff in here that's unknowable. And even if you could know, it's probably pretty boring. Um, and I think that that is, Dustin, a, a very good point. Uh, and I think um, Arthur's brought it up, but I think Butch and, or um, Bonnie and Clyde does the same thing, right? It shows a lot of these small kind of like eh, moments that didn't mean a lot to them, but ended up being, you know, yeah. photographs that were all over every newspaper in America. Um, it, it's an interesting choice. I don't know that it totally succeeds because we're still telling the story of Butch and Sundance. Uh, legends, yay, living in memory, blah, 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 who gives a shit? They're dead. Uh, they robbed some banks. They didn't get away with it, the end. Uh, and you're right. I mean, it's a cool touch for the film to to employ, but it's still a movie about outlaws, man. I mean, mm-hmm. nothing you can do makes makes it not be that. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it just seems like there's a little bit of awareness, you know, a nascent awareness of that that's a sort of slightly de-romanticizing. Um, that, I, again, I find interesting. I, I guess I've, I've come to a point in my film-watching life where I, I don't want the slightly demystifying. I only want it fully de-romanticized and fully demystified at this point, which is why I like something like the, the Sisters Brothers from last year. Yeah. does a really good job of doing that kind of thing. Um, I can't think of any other films off the top of my head, uh, except for one of my uh, films that I'm going to recommend to pair with this. Well, that's probably fair, and I guess we could probably move on to that point of the show. Feels like the right time. Let's render a verdict about this film, A Shelf for Trash, else or instead I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, I am going to go ahead and trash this one. Uh, Yeah, it it doesn't totally work for me. Uh, And again, I'm I'm not that interested in this kind of thing. What should you watch instead? Uh, I would watch The Old Man and the Gun, uh, a film that I know Arthur likes a whole lot from this year. Sorry, Siri decided it wanted to join my uh, my final thoughts. Uh, the Old Man and the Gun, I think, does a lot of the same things that Butch and Sundance does a whole lot better. And it is made uncomplicated by the fact that uh, the titular old man didn't do any murders. Uh, he was just robbing banks. Uh, and I think it makes it a, a tale that's easier to tell, uh, but it also allows it to be a Western free of mystery, because that's when you strip all of the romance out of these Western tales, they're just a couple of drifters, man. Like, there were cities, there were towns to live in and have a life. Uh, and that's, I think for me, I there are so few Westerns that deal with, like, the fact that the West was really just the rural areas being eaten up by urban areas. Um, and when you have the 1890s through like the 1920s, there's plenty of room to tell that story. And Butch and Sundance just isn't telling it in a way that I find satisfying. And there's not that many Westerns at that time period. And I want something different out of them. I want them to set themselves apart from Western set in like the 1860s or seventies. Um, and I think old man, the gun does that very well by setting it in the modern day. I mean, it happened, the story that it's based on happened in the modern day, but great Robert Redford performance, uh, and again, him being older in age now allows him to tell a story about uh, the sundown years of your life when they don't come early like they did for uh, for Sundance. What what happens when you do get to stay on the run for your entire life? Like, what kind of life do you leave behind you? And it turns out, not a great one. Um, you just end up living for you and don't really think about the people in your wake. Uh, what else should you pair with it? The Way of the Gun, uh, a film starring uh, Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Philippi from like 01, 02. Uh, it's Christopher McQuarrie film, his follow-up. Uh, I can't remember who. No, it's his directorial debut, actually. Um, he uh, he got that job coming off of The Usual Suspects. And it is the 90s Butch and Sundance uh, in a whole lot of ways, not the least of which being it is nihilistic and mean and gross. But I like that about it because it does say, you know who's uh, outlaws on the run? Jerks. Mostly jerks, especially nice, pretty white boys who have other options available to them. They mean, and they punch women, and they uh, rob and kidnap pregnant people. Like, they're not cool guys, but it's a fun movie uh, and an interesting movie that I think complicates these sort of outlaw myths that we have. Um, finally, I am going to recommend uh, another Paul Newman movie since I recommended a, another uh, Rob Redford movie. It's Cool Hand Luke. I love Cool Hand Luke. Uh, a, a folktale of a different kind because he's a folktale created by film, but uh, it's just a great film. And again, I, I think another one that interrogates the sort of outlaw thing we've been talking about in a really interesting way. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. Well, what do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? I will shelf it. Uh, I, I, I love it quite a bit. Uh, else, yeah, Old Man and the Gun, it's it's a spiritual sequel. Uh, it's a 
fun continuation of you know if Sundance had gone on and you know where does that character go and you know I think well you know you never actually see him die on screen they could have made it there's some very interesting uh, stylistic oh, yeah. flourishes that definitely call to mind but yeah. in Sundance and you know David Lowry's I think definitely influenced he's definitely picking up on that and it's just you know it's got that meta thing going just as well as Dalton kind of hinted at this kind of you know guy in his sundown period and he's trying to ride off into the sunset and he doesn't know exactly what that looks like and how to let go of those things um it's it's the perfect pairing i think it's a it's a great film from uh, last year i would also suggest if you you know we've name dropped it a couple of times easy rider i i think as well yeah uh would be kind of a key one here uh to kind of pick up on a lot of those same themes uh just in a uh, more cult film fashion and a little more transgressive fashion uh, and then finally, Ocean's Eleven. Uh, it is the uh, Butch and Sundance story. I mean, it is you know, it is Newman and Redford. Man, when you when you made that comment, I think you've said this on the show before, Arthur. But this episode, when you made that comment about Newman Redford being Clooney Pitt, that's Nailed spot it. on, oh, yeah. dude. Yeah. yeah, it's the same banter. Yeah, and a, uh, and I mean that in a good way. No, yeah, but uh, they have that chemistry. They they look like Newman they and Redford. Really do. I mean, Pitt, Pitt looks and like a Redford, especially. Yeah. Uh, and, and Clooney has that cool laid back charm about him that Newman carries in, in, in Butch. And so as far as, you know, Ocean's Eleven stylistic, Soderbergh's doing a lot of that same stuff. He's incorporating a lot of those stylistic flourishes that he picks up as a late eighties, early nineties, independent filmmaker and, and that Sundance period, right. You know, of the early nineties, sex lies and videotapes. He's got that kind of artistic flourish there that he picked up watching the new Hollywood and those European new, <laughs> new wave films, and he's putting those into a very commercial film in, in Ocean's Eleven. And I think that is just an, another perfect pair with Butch and Sundance. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I am going to say trash, but I'm not going to say what you should watch instead. I am going to still say else. I'll allow it. Plot twist. Plot twist. And not that you're. I, not that me allowing it's gonna change anything. Yeah, no, you, he we just kind of are no rules. He kind of paused like he was waiting for approval. So well, it's like okay, I, I'm not saying don't watch it. I'm just saying oh. don't buy it. Yeah, totally. Um, fair. So yeah, watch it. Sure. And you know what else you should watch is maybe uh, something that does hit the comedy level a little bit more in the belly laugh zone, and that is looking at um, Mel Gibson and James Garner and Maverick. Um, I think would be a good example. You there. know what? Good movie. You know, it's a lot of fun, you know, and it's, it's a good time, and it's you know got some the same sort of heisty things at work, and yeah, totally worth your time. Um, and then I think maybe come to the bookend of the so if this is the beginning of the sort of what what we're talking revisionist western, the, the sort of beginning inklings of that the apotheosis, then look at Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven. And so you take Unforgiven, you take uh, Bush and Sundance, you take Maverick, and you have had a rootin' tootin' good time there, partner. We should really do Maverick next month. We should. Jodie Jody Foster is so funny in that movie. She's great. James Garner is so funny in yes. such a deadpan. I don't know if either of you have ever seen either of the support your local films that he did in the 60s. Mm. No. He does two films. They're unrelated, but similar kind of character. Uh, I, I don't think they're related, but it's the same character type he does. Um, there's support your local sheriff and support your local gunfighter. Okay, yeah, no, I've, I've heard of these films. And, uh, you know, uh, support your local sheriff. He rolls into town. He's on his way to Australia. That's his big thing. He's just kind of this lone guy that rolls in. Uh, and the town is just... They've found gold and this lawless anarchy has come, so he signs up to be the sheriff so he can make a few bucks... Uh, because they're charging like eight bucks a plate for, for,
for food, so mm-hmm. he needs to make a uh, earning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in support your local uh, sh- uh, gunfighter, he gets mistaken for like a, a real Sundance type of gunfighter. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, and he's trying to ride this reputation until the real guy shows up. Uh, <laughs> that's great. But uh, he, he just carries these movies with such a quick kind of deadpan wit. He's so sharp. And uh, Garner doesn't get enough appreciation. Yeah. Oklahoma's own he James Garner. Darn tude. Norman's own. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Buddy. So well, He's there a good you, one. There you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, and our time with that film. I guess we'll do one more. Oh yeah, we get to do one more. Yeah. I do suppose. we get to? We're going to get to talk about another Academy Award nominated movie. We are uh, from uh, For, Unprecedented, as, uh, 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 the Netflix original. Yeah, the Academy Award nominated. Weird. Joel and Ethan Cohen going back to the cowboy genre. Did it get a did it get a best pick nod? Best adapted best. screenplay. Yeah, screenplay. screenplay, song, and costuming. And walk costume. away with three nods. Kind of out of nowhere. Wow. Mm. Netflix's uh aggressive for your consideration campaign seems to have paid off. I think uh I don't know I don't know you, either of you have seen it, have you? Nope. nope. I've been waiting to watch it for this episode. I think you'll uh, you'll be in for a lot of fun. I'm uh, excited. I think uh the segments are a little hit or miss at times, but overall I think it's a charmer. We are doing Our game next week is ranking the segments. Oh, right? definitely. Okay, just make sure. Almost definitely, yes. Okay. Because we're talking the ballad of Buster Scruggs. I'm so excited. Featuring an- another Oki. Mr. Tim Blake Nelson. I'm so excited. Uh, I I cannot wait. I hope Uh, beyond hope they let him perform on the Oscar stage. That would be great. That's all I want in this world now that I know that it's a possibility. I have heard a little bit about his segment, the the titular ballad, and I am so excited. Because it sounds like the funniest thing I've ever heard. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm ready. Dustin, how much do you know about Buster Scruggs? I know it's a singing cowboy movie. It it's is an also film. it is also super dark. It, okay, it it's is a Coen's. Yeah, they Coen's. they they get to do Cohen comedy and Cohen nihilism. Okay, yep. Lebowski. I mean, which is yeah, it's it, I'm excited. Maybe a little Fargo from what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe a little Miller's Crossing. I, I've heard it's got a touch. Maybe a little of, Lewin Davis. I've got. I've heard there's a touch of No Country in there too. Fargo is yeah. one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Fargo yeah. is very funny. And we got a great cast in Tim Blake Nelson. We got Liam Neeson. We got James Franco. You know, We've got. Uh, <laughs> I can. I can never think of his name. Freaking uh, Milton in the Office Space. Uh, Steve. Stephen. Stephen Root. Stephen Root. Uh, oh, I love like him. him. Um, trying to. Th- I mean, it's, it's a stacked cast. It's, it's um, ridiculous. Zoe. Yeah, I can't think of her last name yeah, either. She's uh, she Kazan. Oh, there we yeah. go. Zoe Kazan's in Basic. it. Yep. Um, so yeah, ton, a ton, it's ton, ton. Good time. Mm. Uh, very excited. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is in it. This uh, will be the official end of our anti trash portion. Trash. Our anti trash portion of the Western Super Marathon, right? Yeah, and, and I think it's a really good transitionary point into a more good trash, you know, quote unquote, uh, run of westerns because I, I think it's you know it's definitely a film that's going to be playing with a lot of the tropes of the the genre across the board, and I think some moments are very fascinating. Oh, Tom Waits. Oh damn, that's right. Oh, he plays yeah. the he plays the He's gold the, pine, yep. gold yeah, okay. pan, right? Yep. Dear Lister, you have to know. As soon as Arthur said Tom Waits, he pointed at me, yeah, because he knew I would be very happy. Tom Waits is also an old man of the gun. Yeah. Oh, golly. Are you spoiler f- alert. Uh, Tom Waits segment might be one of my uh, probably it's probably one of the best segments. I've heard uh, the Zoe Kazan segment and uh, the Tom Waits segment get shouted out as two of the yep. best by a lot of people. I'm I've also heard in. the Liam Neeson one get shouted out by like some it. people's favorite. Maybe I guess we'll find it. out next week. I'm excited. Let's do I'm it. I'm excited. So you keep watching. We'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time.
Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genre Cast, a product of GoodTrashMedia.com. For more Good Trash content, such as the Good Trash Genre Cast, the Praise Down, the Borgo Pass, whatever it's called, head on over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Your intro this week is, as always, from friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. And our outro this week is, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Raindrops are falling on my head just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did need some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job are falling on my head they keep falling but there's one thing I know the blues they send to meet me won't defeat me it won't be long till happiness steps up to greet me rain Falling on my head But that doesn't mean My eyes will soon be turning red Crying's not for me Cause I'm never gonna stop the rain By complaining Because I'm free Nothing's worrying for me cause I'm never gonna stop the rain